Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moran. So this week on the podcast, we have the brilliant Hugh Travers. Hugh is a writer who next up, you can check out his work with White Label. It is a new play called These Stupid Things. It's got an amazing team behind it. It's directed by the brilliant Sarah Baxter. Uh, the lighting designs by Bill Woodland, set in costume by Sarah Foley, sound designed by Vincent Doherty, and the cast is Rachel O'Byrne and Ian Toner. Um, it sounds absolutely brilliant. We're going to chat a bit about it on the podcast, I am sure. And you can find it at Smock Alley Theatre in the main space from the 16th to the 21st of July um, so it's next week uh, as you're going to hear this episode coming out and um, they've got matinees as well on the Saturday and Sunday it's a 7.30 show other than that uh, and you should go and check it out you're going to know Hugh's work from the screen too um, he wrote a Dutch comedy drama uh, called The Matchmaker uh, which was produced by Lemming Films this year as well as that Trial of the Century um, starring the brilliant Tom Von Lawler he's written on Red Rock uh, he's developing shows with the BBC Studios and Deadpan Pictures and uh, look it's an absolute pleasure to have him him in with us. So Hugh, if you're listening, thanks so much for taking the time to come and chat to us. In other news, guys, I kick off Copperface Jacks the Musical this week. In fact, as you hear this, it will be last week. Um, so hopefully the show uh, will be up and uh, running and doing really great, uh, having the best time getting it back on its feet. And especially after last year, just how well it went and um, just got to spend a brilliant summer with um, some brilliant, brilliant people. So I'm really excited to kick things off again with that. So if you're about, come and check it out. Uh, in other news, go and uh, have a look at our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash personality. Bingo. Uh, there's some cool uh, rewards and stuff on there. And if you can support this podcast, as I always say, it makes a massive difference. And as Blind Boy always says, um, it is... Uh, what does he say? Oh, I forget my introduction. He... Um, he says the thing about where it's a model based off soundness. Uh, so if you're uh, able to be uh, a little bit sound, um, go and chip uh, a couple of euro in our way. It makes a huge difference. Uh, I'm sorry for a scattered introduction, but um, today is the day of our first show. And uh, I'm running from podcast to press call to dress rehearsal to first show. So uh, Brain is a bit all over the place, but look, I'm sure a lovely, lovely chat with the wonderful Hugh Travers will cure that. So guys, without uh, further ado, please enjoy the wonderful Hugh Travers playing personality bingo with Tom. More. Hugh Travers, ready to play Personality Bingo? Absolutely. All right, sweet. So a quick explanation of how it all works. I have got 60 uh, minutes on the clock. I've got 60 balls in here and 60 corresponding questions. Uh, I've also given you a sheet of paper with uh, five numbers on it. Would you do me a favour and read out the five? Uh, I have what looks like an eight. <laughs> how dare you? So he's questioning my handwriting already, ladies and gentlemen. How dare you? It, it is More of a squiggle. <laughs> it's a perfectly drawn eight, your eyes to see you. Uh, 49, 11, uh, 13 and 23. Nice one. Would you do me uh, another favour? Pick a sixth number, something between 1 and 60 that's not already there. Um, let's go for 31. I have 13, which is unlucky, so maybe let's try and reverse that and, and get 31. 31. All right, nice one. Uh, and I should say that if all six of them numbers do come out, that means the tables are turned uh, and you get to ask me any question in the whole wide world and I'll give you a totally honest answer. All right, let's do it. Okay, first number out. It's number... Oh my God, it's number squiggle. Look at squiggle. it. <laughs> Great. It's number squiggle. <laughs> number eight. What is happening? Off to a good start. Oh, dear. Okay, number eight. Um, oh, here you go. Uh, number eight. Would you like to host the Late Late Show? Would I like to host the Late Late Show? No. Um, there are certain things. I'm not someone who necessarily would. Uh, there are certain things in the public line, like public eye that I wouldn't mind doing. I'm not somebody who's completely like, oh, geez, I couldn't handle like being in front of people, that kind of thing. But... Mm. Uh, but the Late Late Show, no, that's a, that is a thankless task. Uh, like, I remember years ago, um, uh, was it when Pat Kenny was hosting the Late Late Show and I went to see Des Bishop doing a comedy routine mm. and he was saying, like, everybody's giving out about Pat Kenny, you know. And, like, I remember, like, everyone's like, oh, bring back Gay, bring back Gay. It's like, I remember when I moved over here, everybody used to complain, like, oh, Gay burns terrible. And, uh, and he says, well, you'll see now, in 10 years when Tuberty's doing it, like, you'll all be giving out about Tuberty. And it was a joke at the time, but, like, because Tuberty was just this upstart. Uh, but sure enough, ten years later, Tuberty comes along and everyone's giving out about him. Like it is kind of a, an awkward format, and it doesn't really 
the mix of entertainment and current affairs and issue stuff doesn't really work and Tuberty is a bit wooden sometimes mm. but he's still like geez, it's a, an impossible job like you know it is uh, I, like I wouldn't wish it on anybody because you know it's like this institution and uh, yeah I I I wouldn't uh, take on such a poison chalice. <laughs> yeah, completely fair. So, what, like, that is interesting about because even we, we were joking when we were like sound checking the mics at the start, and I was like, it's the most awkward thing about like, uh, I was telling about the headphones, and I was like, actors don't mind using the headphones, right? Mm. Everyone else generally doesn't. You're using the headphones. But that, that, that's interesting in and of itself because you were saying you're not like totally adverse to like that kind of thing, like that idea of like presenting a show, for example. And there's also that like cliche of like writers as kind of like, you know, reclusive lawyers. Or, or, or whatever um, so like where does where does that like fit with you because then obviously like the idea of like presenting something like you know a TV show is almost feels on the opposite side of the spectrum to that so amongst that like uh, stereotype where do you see yourself fit uh, well I wouldn't necessarily say I, I would be like keen to present a TV show but I would say yeah. like I so I come from like a lot of like teachers like my dad was uh, like a teacher then a principal and, and then worked in as a kigger like an inspector and my, my kind of aunties and uncles are teachers and my sister went into educational psychology and it's like so education is a big thing in my family and I thought I was completely avoiding it but in the end I ended up doing uh, I got a couple of residencies in Minute and UCC and ended up doing lecturing there and I've taught in a FOSS course a little bit and uh, taught in the Irish Writer Centre a little bit so in the end I've ended up doing quite a bit of teaching and that's obviously quite presentational and you're up in front of people and you're kind of on show and I don't actually mind that. I quite enjoy it. Not the necess- not necessarily the bit of being on show, but just the process of trying to figure out an issue to the degree that you can explain it to somebody else, mm. I think is a real useful exercise in actually understanding the thing fundamentally itself. Mm. Uh, and then once you do feel like you fundamentally understand it, you do, I do have this urge to kind of share that with other people and try and explain it in a way that I understood it. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's the closest thing. And I, in theory, I don't mind... I don't mind the size of people I would be talking to, you know, totally, if, yeah. if I was talking to a lecture room or a couple of people in a workshop or there happened to be a microphone that was being recorded, uh, I would quite happily do that. So I like the idea of, uh, yeah, I suppose education and I don't mind if, uh, I don't mind if, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't mind being on show in that context, mm. but uh, I wouldn't necessarily be into kind of like being a TV presenter. I'm not sure I'd have the, the kind of level of energy and charisma that is necessary <laughs> sure yeah yeah it's really funny you know as like like the more like because i don't know i don't know to what extent so for example right when you're you know as a writer and the majority of your your income and your time and all these things is, is spent doing this thing d- does it does it in any way um like great with your sense of identity or your sense of self or your sense of where you want to be when you also find yourself you know, as well as doing the thing, teaching the thing. Like, do, 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 do you have that feeling of like, oh, because I, let's, for example, say I'm teaching screenwriting, it makes me less of a screenwriter? Yeah, I know what you mean. Sometimes you do kind of question that, like, that, you know, like there is that horrible cliche of those <laughs> yeah. who can't do teach. Um, and I am also kind of reluctant to uh, suggest that, like, every aspect of screenwriting can be taught and that there is a formula and that there is, you know. But there, I think there are useful insights and useful practices, useful tools that you can give to people or ways of looking at it that you have discovered over the years or things that you've taken from other people um, that have helped you understand a useful way to go at the practice mm. and that if they can be passed on in a way like that makes sense to other people, that's helpful. But I... Yeah, I find it difficult the idea of saying I'm a screenwriting guru or something like that or I am going to give you the secrets to screenwriting this is exactly how you write a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't necessarily see myself because I do think there are countless examples of people who aren't successful writers who then do re-kind of posit themselves as a as a like as gurus or and I am looking to that I've yeah it is as you say very much part of my identity that I am a working screenwriter and I uh, I do that full time and uh, I am like delighted to be able to say that and to be able to like even have gotten this far to achieve that mm. uh, that it's you know I can make it my full time job uh, sometimes when I'm doing the lecture on the side it is a 
useful bump to the income that's never unwelcome totally. uh, and I do enjoy it as an exercise in itself but yeah I, I kind of would struggle with the idea that if it took over if it became like you know more than a couple of days a week or more than uh, because yeah I suppose uh, as I think about it uh, it's a good question because I do probably on reflection think that my part of my identity be is my identity is wrapped up in being a working screenwriter mm. and that I probably would feel not that I'd opted out but yeah I would maybe feel that I'd walked away a little bit if I if I was teaching full time but I think it may not my, my priorities might change in the future so I wouldn't really let out but that's where my head's at at the moment yeah 100% uh-huh. right sweet let's give a spin alright next up we got number 47 do you have it? nope no worries. Number 47. Uh, what do you think people's first impressions of you are? Ooh. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. I don't know. Um, I think it is... I think I do worry about it. Like, I'm not somebody who um, would claim to not give a shit what anybody thinks about me, you know? Um, I think I do kind of work to ingratiate myself to people. I'm somebody who uh, likes to kind of diffuse situations, like, uh, and not... You know, and like let people know straight away that this is okay. I'm not gonna like, uh, you know, uh, butt heads with you here, or like this isn't doesn't doesn't need to be a competition, or you know, like the, I, I tend to want, want people like to put people at ease and and just get to know them. Uh, I wouldn't say like I'm definitely not like an extrovert. I can like I find it difficult to. Uh, make small talk with people but if I get past that level with people and I can actually get into a talk where there's a kind of a uh, like call it a safe space or where you kind of just an understanding that both of you are like both of you know that you're speaking to each other in good faith and mm-hmm. that like there's room to kind of say things that like uh, that you're not going to like that aren't going to be misjudged or whatever then I find that like I, I will become quite a talker I will become like somebody who never shuts up and so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily tend to start off like that with somebody uh, so I think people might see me as um, somebody who is uh, maybe reserved a little not reserved but maybe a little uh a nervous energy about me sometimes and people might I think people would immediately read that I'm not like uh this outgoing extrovert who's like 100% super confident in social situ- situations but at the same time I think uh, I hope when people get to know me they, uh, they think I'm uh, <laughs> uh, yeah that I think actually sometimes it's one of those things I think everybody has like an ego mm. so while I would have a kind of a nervous energy and wouldn't necessarily assume that anybody's going to like me I wouldn't instantly want to be liked I think once I do get to know somebody and I'm secure in like the fact that there's a relationship there I uh I'm much more confident as a person and I then do begin to not worry so much what they... I I would choose to be as non-judgmental of them as possible and I would kind of hope that they'd be the same to me and so therefore I I, I tend to be... I tend not to check my... I can kind of actually talk quite freely sometimes and like I was over-talk at times and Mm. uh, so, uh, yeah, I think I probably... (laughs) change from going to being quite reserved to being quite uh, uh, quite a talker <laughs> yeah 100% you know, it, I mean it, it's very interesting like that idea of because I would I would I actually identify with a, a decent chunk of that especially about like for example like something like a nervous energy or a mm. tendency to over talk or think mm. too much about um, not even think too much I, I wouldn't actually consider myself an overthinker necessarily but within a conversation as I am think, like for example like I can speak with about a hundred million different clauses in a sentence because I'm con- <laughs> like I'm constantly taking the other person's temperature yeah. to be like oh if I say too much of this I have to be a little self-deprecating totally, yeah, here but yeah. a bit too self-deprecating so I'll go for them there and like <laughs> this, this thing but like also it, like it, uh, for you like as a journey as like a, a person like is it something that you would just accept about yourself as like oh yeah like Hugh sometimes has like a nervous energy when he meets people for the first time or is it something that you like would you know make an active effort to like push against and be like and we're going to relax into this conversation or is it just kind of yeah. well, that's part of me I think yeah I think it is one of those things with age you just kind of accept a certain amount about yourself like I think I would have maybe in teens and 20s tried to be, like overcome that nervous energy like try and portray a kind of or like fake a sense of confidence or try and be something that it wasn't but 
you kind of just at a certain point realize this is who you are and like if there's any sort of insecurities to come off just go you just kind of accept that and I suppose you just find a certain level of comfort with yourself and you go look I give this time I think this these people will like me and if they don't um, maybe they're not worth knowing you know so mm. uh, you know or if there's a relationship to be had I've I've enough good great relationships in my life uh, that I kind of like I'm desperate like to form new ones but like if I do find somebody that I like and get on with that's great so I guess yeah in that sense I'm not desperate to like make you know this really intense connection with every new person I meet I'm like look I might come across as, across as like a, a little nervous or insecure or on edge, uh, but if they if they've got a problem with that or if they don't warm to me, that's totally fine. It doesn't bother me too much, you know. Uh, so yeah, I kind of less pressure, I suppose, to build relationships, less pressure to be liked. Or and I feel like, yeah, I suppose it's just that natural thing that a lot of people say. You just get more comfortable in your skin. You get like or maybe not more comfortable in your skin but more just accepting like that mm. at this point you know uh, your chances of completely transforming <laughs> are quite slim and do you find like does that attitude for yourself mirror an attitude that you have with your own creative work like would you find it easier now for example if um, for, for example like the, the prospect of a bad review or something like that do you find that easier to take now because you're like well I like what I make or do, do you do you find your like like deep down is there like a tendency to want to like or not even a tendency but an awareness that like I really would like to chase a really good reviewer yeah um, no I mean I could lie and say like oh no, the, the, the reviews don't bad review wouldn't bother me or I don't even read reviews which is mm. like would be a total lie <laughs> uh, no I mean I think I mean I guess a more interesting way of talking about it might be like the, the idea of maybe come back to review thing but mm. I suppose like I did when I started out like I did have this idea that like I wanted to have like a real strong voice like you know or like I was trying to ins- like in search of like what my voice was you know like because there's certain r- great writers that I like that really like wrote in a certain way and wrote about certain things and uh, and I kind of felt that like maybe I didn't have that and excuse me um, I yeah, and I had a kind of maybe an insecurity about that that like I, I like I would wasn't a good enough writer because like I, I tend to be quite um, I bounce around genres a lot like I bounce I will write a lot of very different kinds of things mm-hmm. I um, my like I don't concentrate on one particular you know I don't just write comedy or I don't just write like drama or just write horror or genre stuff or uh, like I, so I'll, I'll do all sorts of kinds of kinds of things. Um, but over time, actually, what I realized is like, okay, A, that's part of what I do is kind of like uh, an ability to jump between things and kind of figure out what makes different types of uh, script work. Or, uh, but then B, even, I kind of began to identify over a long period of time, actually, there are kind of preoccupations that are at work uh, in that, uh, even like across the different genres that I work in, there are certain things that I keep coming back to certain themes. And there are... Uh, there are kind of things like elements of my work like the way I write like dialogue or even the way I interpret characters or how generous or ungenerous I am to my characters in terms of like you know or just giving scripts heart uh, or, and um, trying to put some humanity into them like there are things like that that um, I do that come naturally to me that I never that aren't necessarily part of like a voice as such you know mm. uh, but they are a, a kind of they're preoccupations of mine are just my way of processing the world and putting it into a script and therefore uh, I'm more confident and accepting that like oh yeah no I do have like a thing that I bring uh, to writing that isn't like it might not be as loud as like uh, like a, a classic example is something like Tarantino you know or you know some great like Marco Rowe or you know has a really or at least in the early days started off with a really distinct style that marked him out you know sure. uh, or Mamet or you know any of these people that like uh but yeah, over time you become more accepting of like, uh, uh, no, this is what I do. Uh, so then when that transfers to reviews, I think maybe uh, you get a little bit more accepting of, no, like I know, or being your own reviewer, like, and then I know what we did there. I kind of know where we failed. I kind of know where we succeeded. Mm. And if you see a review, it's like, yeah, I suppose that's fair. Or if you see a review that completely missed the mark, you kind of be a little bit more philosophical about that and say well I think they miss what we're trying to do and I'm I'm 
uh, confident or I'm kind of happy enough that I'm satisfied that the thing that we were trying to do, we did. And, um, you know, so um, it depends on the nature of the review, you know, and it, I suppose if it's if it's willfully ignorant or willfully like snide, uh, I think, I, you know, it'd be hard to take. Uh, you get a little bit more angry. But to be honest, I've been I've been very lucky. Like I haven't really had any bad reviews. Uh, sometimes it's the middling ones, you know, like uh, that you kind of go, uh, they wouldn't be like overly critical and so it's hard to dismiss. There'd be like a little like, quite positive and there'd be a little line of like uh, they just sprinkled in there and you're like what did that mean what did they mean by that you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you'd obsess over that yeah um but yeah no i've been i've been generally lucky and a couple of things like i, I was that weren't reviewed well like I, I kind of where the things were never going to be reviewed well like years ago i was involved in this like i created this pilot for a, a comedy panel show and it went out on rte and like it was slated like but it was it was supposed to be kind of mental and kind of like silly like the whole point of it was was that it was really silly mm. and uh so i didn't expect that to be particularly well reviewed um and like it wasn't i think it was only a couple of a couple of reviews actually picked up on it uh but you know and again it's not even my realm so, as such it's not even like what i'd put my kind of pride of occupation in so sure. uh so that was easy enough to kind of kind of let it whatever be water off it looks back but and then yeah. like for you because obviously you write across a few different genre, well mm. the genres as you mentioned but even like mediums I suppose yeah. between like film TV and, and, and theatre uh, um, so m- maybe to split like to, to screen versus stage for a minute mm. what do they both like mean to you and how do you divide up like you know, for example, like you, mm. you know, this looks like I'm trying to shoehorn it in. I'm genuinely not, but something like you know, doing work with White Label, mm. uh, who like you've worked with before, obviously, and and the like the upcoming play at Smock, mm. um, then like versus you know, working on you know, something that like commercially or, or even financially for you is going to be of like much more gain, mm. like developing a series or like a, yeah. a screenplay or something like that. How do you weigh up like when is time for which project and this kind of thing? Uh, Money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's a strange thing. Like, obviously, film and TV is more consistent and like uh, lucrative is the wrong word, but like it's it it pays the bills in a more consistent way. Uh, Theater's just this thing that like it's like this um, like this affair that you can't quite quit. <laughs> like you know, like it's mm. this thing that you keep coming back to because. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love theater, and it, and it does exercise a different kind of part of the brain. It's it's a little bit more freeing uh, like it's a strange thing about film and TV like in, everybody can talk about film and TV like because of the advances in technology that like uh, and VFX and all that like oh you can you know imagine anything and you can create it in film and TV you know and, but actually like especially in an Irish and even British context uh, like budgets are limited like um, there's so many financiers involved it has to fit in a place where an audience understand what, what it is and can come and access it mm. and like you know you have to put it in a specific drawer so the audience go oh I'm going to go to that drawer to get this thing that I know what's going to be in there you know so mm-hmm. it, there's a whole mode of creating film and TV that puts parameters on what you're trying to do um, and that's great and I enjoy it and I find it totally uh okay to work in that in in those within those parameters and it's I find it okay like I find I can still express myself within those parameters but theatre is actually weirdly like even though the budgets are lower uh, there's very little money in it theatre is actually way more freeing like you can literally imagine anything and it can kind of exist uh, on stage for a moment you know mm-hmm. and you don't need uh, VFX and you don't need uh, necessarily bells and whistles uh, and then on the flip side additionally I suppose the audience will sometimes come to it just because they've heard it's interesting or because of the people involved uh, obviously you don't necessarily always need to get as many people to come to see it uh, but yeah it does, so it doesn't need to necessarily fit into a box in the in the way that sometimes film and TV does uh, obviously great film and TV sometimes like breaks out of a box or you like puts two boxes together you know but like uh, theatre can be like sometimes idiosyncratic and unusual and uh so in that sense it can just be more freeing and yeah just i suppose technically you're just you write it in a slightly different way it tends to be more like a uh, dialogue or like word-based right less a little bit less visual you, you know you, you, uh, although I, I do try and write theater as visually as possible but mm. uh 
So it just exercises a different part of the brain. So often I will just write theatre when I feel the need to scratch that itch or I have an idea that like finally feels like ready to write something. And usually when I have like, oh, I have two weeks where it just happens that I've submitted some script to a producer and I'm not going to hear back in a week or two and I don't want to start that other thing yet. So I just have this week, two week window. I will start working on that play idea. Mm. Uh, and then as to when something gets staged, uh, that's all to do with the money. I, I, I did fringe shows when I started out in theatre and I probably prematurely decided, right, I've done my fringe shows and now I'm not doing anything until I get funded again. Right. Uh, and as a result, I actually haven't like made a theatre show in like six years. <laughs> so, uh, and like I've done plenty of bits and pieces. I've worked with White Label and stuff and we've done like, uh, you know, rehearsed readings and like all sorts of things. And I developed bits and pieces of work. I've de- I was developing something with Yabby and developing something with, well, I was doing a play for Ireland with Fishamble. So yeah. I'm always working in theatre, but like in terms of uh, a stage in a show, it's actually been quite a while because I've been waiting to get like a proper chunk of funding to do a show in the right way mm. and that's why this is exciting to play that's coming up in uh, Smock Alley is that like we got funding for, from Science Foundation Ireland and we were able to do it like right and, and, and you know put on uh, a proper piece of theatre you know? yeah brilliant yeah. Oh, I'm excited to see it right let's give it a spin okay next up number 29 do you have it? Uh, no, I don't. No worries. Uh, number 29. Who is your favourite? This is exciting because this question has never... Most of my guests don't like sports and this is the okay. only sports question on the podcast and you're a sports person, so this <laughs> is good. Uh, who is your favourite Irish sports person? All right. Um, I guess, like, growing up, I was big fan of Paul McGrath. Mm. Uh, like, he was kind of a hero... Um, uh, and I felt like I would have been into I was a Liverpool fan so I would have been into like uh, players that played for Liverpool um, in that kind of Italian 90 era like Staunton and Houghton and Aldridge and um, so yeah I suppose I, yeah, I was just at the age where Italian 90 was massive for me so that kind of cohort of people were, were, were a big deal and Paul McGrath stood out uh, partly because he was a bit different partly because there was no it was just an unusual character as well mm. and because it just seemed so effortless to him, you know. Uh, he was brilliant, brilliant, but in an effortless way. Like there was a kind of hint of genius about him. Um, nowadays, he'd be my favorite sports person. Um, I don't know. I've, I'm generally somebody who finds it difficult to. Uh, I don't have heroes, like you know. I don't. Um, I'm. I find it almost difficult to conceive of like this perfect person that I worship or and it, it, it's funny it comes not to bring it straight back to writing from sport but like mm. it was the same thing I, I did Seeds several years ago with Rough Magic Seeds and one of the things of that is to like uh, to hook you up with a mentor who will kind of like uh, you just meet with regularly maybe they, uh, they won't develop your work because that's done within Rough Magic but they'll read your scripts and they'll you know they maybe just say uh, give you some advice on your writing in general and just give you advice about the industry and just like the life of a writer mm. and so I was asked like oh, who, do you, who do you want to be your mentor and I just couldn't like decide on somebody I just couldn't decide like oh this is my hero I want, who I want to be my mentor like, loads of writers who I respected uh, and I had loads of time for but probably with all those writers I'd seen something that I was like oh uh, that wasn't their best work or I, like as horribly presumptuous as this is but I think this is the way every writer works to a certain degree I would have said oh yeah I might have done that differently or whatever uh, so uh in the end, they actually just paired me with like about 10 different writers for just one-off meetings. And mm. I thought that was just as interesting and useful a process as probably having one mentor. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like there are brilliant people. Like, like uh, there's a part of me that like loves, like in sport, like loves a just humble, uh, brilliant sports person uh, like Katie Taylor you know like just who uh, is all about success but like doesn't let anything else get in the way and seems like quite a nice person and um, then but then there's this part of me that like just is just drawn to the characters like and fascinated by uh, people who are like kind of a mess of contradictions Mm. and I'm kind of ambivalent about them, but then I'm more drawn to them as a result. Like, so obviously the classic examples would be like Keane or... Con- or yeah, or even Conor McGregor or something yeah, like that, you sure. know, who just like, it's impossible. I, like, I, I find the, the idea of like, hero worship, I mean, it, like, it would be just impossible. He just, 
if he, anybody does worship him, like he, he must let you down. Like he must feel let down by him at, at times. You know, like just some of the antics or some of the. Uh, but at the same time, there's a brilliance about like some of, of about his charisma about his just unapologetic brashness that like it's something that I don't have and I suppose that's uh, something that I find fascinating uh, so yeah I guess I'm, I'm generally somebody who can see the gr- or is interested in the grey of things and so I don't mm. I I uh, and the, uh, I don't mind dealing with a certain level of cognitive dissonance so I don't kind of mind uh, I'm I'm yeah, I'm, I never kind of just go, oh, this is, this situation is black, this situation is white, uh, and this person is black, this person is white, that's a hero, that's a villain. I'm much more likely to kind of go, oh, he's a hero, but I suppose on the one hand and the other hand, and like, that person's a villain, but um, I think it's important to understand that, like, you know, where they're coming from. And so I I tend to not, I suppose it makes me non-committal in some respects, but uh, yeah. And, and like, in... I mean, it's a, it's a, it actually is a tricky thing to talk about in ways, but like it, it's such a well trod over piece of real estate at this point. But like in like today's world, it it can lean towards black and white at times. Well, there's so much, and probably the majority of stuff that happens is, is really good and is moving away from things that were really damaging and like a little bit toxic. And at the same time, then there is also a tendency now towards like, a, like a, just a fairly vicious villainization of people really quickly and mm. then it kind of goes away just as quickly yeah. like this this weird thing because I, I would really relate to a lot of what you're saying about like living in the grey and being yeah. most interested in that like how how do you find yourself existing amongst all the media and all the stuff that like we're sort of bombarded with now what like where do you come out with it how does it how does uh, it help you yeah well, I'm kind of fascinated like I'm constantly drawn to stories about these people who are just like their lives are ruined uh, by something they've done or uh, like in some ways I've had like a little bit of experience with myself I developed this um, comedy drama um, uh, which was set against the backdrop of the famine with, mm. uh, and it was developed with Channel 4 and when it came out that it was being developed uh, people went crazy about it and uh I was kind of in a maelstrom of just a kind of a media storm for a few weeks and like it was a bizarre experience you know <laughs> and particularly given that like nobody had read the script you know it was about four or five people in the world who had read the script at the time and I think people misunderstood what it was going to be I think that maybe people expected to be like Channel 4 doing Mrs. Brown's Boys Does the Famine you know like mm-hmm. uh, like and you know I kind of was confident of what we were, what we were trying to do. I knew I could stand over it, and I knew like there was an element of satire in it. There was an element of like uh, it was trying to say something about today as well. Like it wasn't just like oh, isn't the famine funny? Because mm. clearly it's not inherently. Uh, and um, so yeah, I did find it hard to relate to like some of the stuff that said online. I I don't understand how people kind of just see a headline and go, "This is complete bullshit," and this is complete like I just not someone who reacts as like viscerally as that to almost anything you know? I know uh, <laughs> sometimes I'm seeing like that like yeah. level of energy that generated that quickly is extraordinary yeah, exactly like, and, like, uh, and part of me kind of does admire people like who can generate that level of of kind of not indignance but like just that level of like you say energy uh, and can carry you can be that single minded about things you know and I actually do think we need those sorts of people in the world we need people who get angry about things and want to change things or like find things unacceptable like immediately you know mm. and we do need those people uh, in the world I sometimes just wish you could be like uh, kind of corralled into more meaningful action than uh, giving out about like uh, relatively innocuous things on you know online and you know giving out about a, co- a comedy that had they seen it I think it, they might have had a different impression of mm. uh, at the same time look I do accept that you know I never felt like it was complete nonsense like I understood why people were sensitive about like the famine um, but I generally would never judge something until I've seen it and I also generally even when I've I'm not someone who is offended easily and I'm not somebody who uh, yeah just gets very worked up about those things and often when I see like supposedly like uh terrible things that are you know terrible media storms drummed up line where someone has done something awful 
my first instinct is I bet you that's not the full story I bet you like if you heard their version of events it's like probably there's some level on which you can understand this and it's uh, relatively understandable human error mm. you know mm. uh, so yeah because of that I tend not to get too worked up and uh yeah, now I can be a bit more philosophical about that whole incident. <laughs> and, and like for those couple of weeks, did like or, or in the aftermath of it, like did you like you said it was like kind of an extraordinary like place to be in the middle of that storm? But in terms of like quite practically and in terms of like just your general like health and like what you are actually feeling in your like head and your heart and in your tummy and all these places, like like what what was the actual day to day reality of that? Like, uh, I was like those couple of weeks were terrible. Like they were. Like stressed, I didn't sleep very well at all, uh, and did give me like that doesn't happen to me much. So, mm. uh, it and it was relatively like it did give me a, a real empathy for people who actually are dealing with like really high stress, like tra- traumas in their life because like this wasn't like traumatic, you know, mm. and yet it really did affect. Uh, my sleep and my like, uh, like that was all that was in my head for a couple of weeks, you mm, know, and it completely took over for for a couple of weeks, and then it, it, it dissipated bit by bit. Um, and so yeah, it, it definitely gave me much more sympathy for people who are really dealing with genuine like problems in their lives and and that that affect their anxiety levels or their sleep. Uh, but this was just like a passing storm, and uh, I you know was able to get begin to get perspective on it, and you know. My wife is very level-headed, and she was like really great to have, like just to talk to at every and just like unload to, and uh, yeah, like so. I suppose in the middle of it, you do feel like, oh, this is going to end my career, you know, and this is, uh, or like at best, even if it doesn't end my career, it will pigeonhole me. Like I'll only ever be the guy who did that, and you know, I'll only ever be asked to write like these sorts of like weird controversial things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and but yeah, like um, <laughs> like a Marie Antoinette biopic, like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a good idea, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, I, at times you do to- totally lose perspective. Like I was like because there was a, I will say there was a Republican element to the backlash. Like there was all sorts of different people uh, uh, that were uh, angry at me, but a huge part of it was like a real kind of Republican element, and like. Uh, not like that I'd be worried about the IRA obviously yeah. but you did get completely lose perspective and see that like you know there would be people who would like like if they recognise my face from like a couple of like headshots online or whatever and they say how's that prick and yeah. you know like they wouldn't kind of stop to like rough you up or shove you around or just go or grab you by the scruff of the neck and, and, and go what the f- mm. fuck are you thinking and mm. uh, obviously that's not going to happen because nobody gives a shit like and that's the thing but when you're in in the middle of it you completely think that like everybody's talking about it. it's the only thing that anybody's talking about and everybody recognised your face mm-hmm. uh, from it completely delusional but like in those little storms you do actually lose your perspective on on reality and, and it's not that like I mean you can pull yourself back you're constantly reminding yourself okay that's not likely that's like you know uh, uh, I can be ge- generally quite level headed about these things and logical and kind of go uh, okay check your thinking here I'm sure people don't recognise you it's all grand I'm sure put it in context uh, but every so often these gut feelings just like bubble up because you're in this storm but uh, it was look it was now I can be philosophical about it and say it was it was an interesting experience like it was crazy listening like you know <laughs> like it was raised in the House of Commons like uh, at it, like uh, some Liberal MP uh, put forward a motion that the House condemned Channel 4's development just, lest it be offensive to Irish people and like just the irony of a Liberal MP calling for censorship and uh yeah, like just and listening to people, like I remember listening to Irishmen Abroad and like discussing it on that. And like I remember it was an interview with Graham Lennon and Graham Lennon going, Jesus, can you imagine being that guy? <laughs> 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 yeah. And yeah. just like, I remember I think I was doing ironing at the time. It was just ironing my t- uh, shirt or whatever. And I was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> like, yeah. Just stop for a moment and going, like, oh, yeah, I am that guy. <laughs> and, uh, so that was like, that was an unusual experience. And like, just. I, you know, as someone who, like I said, wouldn't necessarily want to be in the limelight, like uh, it was an odd experience, but a really enlightening or eye-opening experience, and something that, in hindsight, I would say I'm glad to have had because it's just was an interesting 
twist in my life. You know? 100%. Yeah, yeah. Do, are you, um, have you gotten a chance to see the Chernobyl um, series? Because uh, the yeah. the writer of that, Craig Mason, is someone, I, I don't know if you've ever come across his podcast. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Like, I've yeah. listened to, to all of them. But, yeah. like, what was so fascinating about him to me, and for anyone who doesn't know, he's a basically, I mean, probably 20 plus years in, you know, Hollywood writing, like, um, various different types of comedy, like, spoof, like, kind of, like, um, kind of those, like, improv style, like, Jason Bateman, Melissa McCarthy style comedies, mm. like, loads of working comedy, and this is the first time he ever wrote drama, and basically just smashed it, <laughs> and, like, it's so interesting hearing him talk about how, like, like, just the, how tricky, like, he finds comedy, and as someone, like, I love working in drama, and, and I like writing sort of, like, you know, comedy drama stuff, and, like, mm. a, a little bit about, but it was really interesting, just, because, like, inevitably, to go for, like, the funny, you've gotta be on some kind of line like you've gotta find that tension and like mm. that level of surprise so yeah it's just it's just fascinating and especially like in in well I don't know is it especially in this day and age or the opposite of especially but like the idea that that something like the famine I mean like I it's so funny like even just hearing about like I it does while I can absolutely appreciate how terrible it is and like the massive number of millions of people that were affected at the same time like I mean there, there's really I don't think there's a joke about the famine someone could make that would make me go like oh you're a scumbag you know yeah. what I mean I just yeah but I mean I'm, I'm, I'm I, f- I don't offend easily like and I, too, I, I kind too. of I kind of understand that that's my place in this like and if there's in a spectrum I'm on one end of it and it's I really don't offend very easily and mm-hmm. I understand that there are other people on the other side of the spectrum and that's I kind of want to be respectful of that but uh, yeah I mean I don't uh, like I, I, it is hard. I think you just have to be able to stand over any work you do, and then, yeah, I would like. I am really interested in the line, like of what's acceptable. And it's not that I'm trying to be controversial. I, I never think I'm trying to be controversial, mm. but I'm fascinated by people, other, other people's work, who manage to kind of like just dance over the line, and like somehow you're like, oh, we're all going over this, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. we're all. I didn't even realize we were past the line because we were having such a good time, you know. And I think that's an incredible thing to achieve, and a really important thing to achieve. Like I do, and actually one of the things, that, one of the interesting things about that experience is it did actually make me reckon with like what I felt about comedy, and what I felt. Like, like I genuinely, because I suppose, form began to form like a real philosophy about like philosophy is very uh, highfalutin. But like, I was able to gather my thoughts on how I felt about comedy, and I I really began to feel strongly that like it's really important, and it's really, uh, it's really unfairly maligned. It's really unfairly overlooked. It's. Like, we need it, you know? Like, even if you just think uh, from an evolutionary perspective, we've obviously evolved it because we needed to make, to form human connections, to be able to deal with difficult things in the world. Uh, I think people don't, like, I don't think it's even fully understood how vital a part of it it is. Like, people don't quite understand what the laugh mechanism really is about, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, like even if you were religious like you kind of have to accept that it's been like you would have to believe that it's been given to us in some divine way so uh, I find that what's such a central I find it bizarre that what's such a central part of our being or if you're religious is such as kind of yeah something like a divine gift to us like uh, is then so so unfairly kind of like oh well you know if it was a drama about thing, well, but God forbid that like we actually try and process something through laughter, this base instinct, this kind of like defiling kind of like thing that we do that we mustn't like acknowledge, like to laugh at something is to kind of like debase it. And it's like, no, like it's almost the highest form of existence to be able to kind of like, uh, like it's, it is like to me, like, you know, music and dancing and laughter are things that like, uh, are binding they bind people together and they like it is that thing like you talk about oh there's a line of people there's a line where people feel they can't get get across or there's people who are in a box and feel their lives are in a very specific place or there's certain parameters that uh, exist around and that they can't break out of and yeah it's it's things like music and dancing and laughter that actually like you find yourself like you find a stand-up comedian talking about something uh hilarious that is so in theory controversial like but they find a way to kind of just laugh their way over that line I think that's yeah I mean I just 
I think it's really important, and I I I think Craig Mason that you brought up it, like would like says it repeatedly on his podcast like all the awards should go to comedy like all the awards because it's so much harder and it's so in some ways it's every bit as valuable uh, and like as he said like he he worked away in uh, Hollywood comedies for years got no credit uh, he's done this drama which he said he found so much easier and now he's been lauded uh, and he said, like, let me tell you, the comedy's way harder. Yeah. Matt, no, but I couldn't yeah. agree more about that thing of, I mean, we were talking, uh, like, we have our, our first night of something like Copper's The Musical mm-hmm. tonight. And again, like that, you know, you could be, you know, and like, uh, as as a as an actor and as a writer, like, I, you know, to, and, and as I work as a comedian, like, more and more, actually, and I, it's somewhere that I, 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 I can feel myself that I'm going to go more and more in that direction. And it's it's like... It's so funny because I used to I I would like to say I felt like shame about it or something would be an absolute exaggeration. But at the same time, like a, a huge learning for me has been like, you know, you're coming out of of drama school. Like, where do I I want to work and what kind of jobs do I want to do? And like, the more and more I work, the more I'm like, well, like, gosh, I really see the value in doing something like Copperface Jackson musical. It, it doesn't take itself seriously. It it's very very silly in a beautiful way. But my God, does it facilitate so much joy within a room? And you're like, that is absolutely valuable. Absolutely, like on yeah. a societal level, like and there, like you, you, when you're in a room sometimes and you can feel an energy that is just so undeniable and it can be profound. Like it's not just like 100%. oh, everyone, everyone was entertained. So like, and people need to get out of their heads. Like there's that which is great. Like people do need that release. But like there's actually something profound about that collective experience about laughing. And like sharing moments of like laughter with like a whole room of people or even people you know who are beside you, uh, um, like it is, it is really like, like it, it's, it's part of what makes us human. Like and like Paul Howard is like genius at it. Like I mm. mean, he does this brilliant commercial theater, and he just like it, it's so much easier said than done. Mm. Oh, like you like Copperface Jackson musical, like like really commercial idea. I bet you people think like, actually, that's such a brilliant commercial idea. Anybody could write that, you know. But like, they couldn't. I promise you they couldn't. And like, Paul Howard knows how to do that. And he like, and like, it's funny and satirical and, you know, and and like, pokes fun in different corners, uh, but lightly and with a gentleness of touch. Like, and that stuff is difficult to do, you know. Mm. and yeah, like it is, it's a very valuable thing to contribute to the world, you know. 100%. I think so. Right, let's give it a spin. Okay, next up we have number 13. There you I go. do have it, yes. All right. Yeah. Um, number uh, 13. What are your memories of 9-11? Oh. Uh, <laughs> From one extreme to uh, I do kind of have a good 9-11 story, actually. Uh, so this will age me slightly, but uh, I went to my J1 in 2001. I went, like, super young. I mm. went, like, pretty much when I was 18. And uh, I we were actually due to fly out uh, from Logan Airport on September 11, 2001, which is Logan Airport in Boston was where all the planes were hijacked from. So we were scheduled to fly out on that day from Logan Airport and we kind of ran out of money and changed our uh, changed our flight home. Uh, so we were in so we were in Rhode Island, which is near New York, and just a week before uh, 9-11, we were in New York and we visited the World Trade Center and... Um, uh, but we changed the flight. We basically didn't have any more money to stay on longer, so we changed the flights, flew home from uh, JFK a week earlier, and uh, got home. And it was a funny thing then when, um, I, like, basically I arrived home and college hadn't started back, and I was just like sitting around the house, uh, and I got a phone call from one of my mates who'd been on the J one. And the thing about like six lads living in the house together, and like obviously over a summer, it was just an awful lot of uh, taking a piss, uh, and like the bar just got lower and lower and so he, friend rings me and go uh, you see the World Trade Center's on fire and I was like yeah whatever yeah like you know pull the other one and uh, he's like no seriously turn on the TV and I was like Ugh, yeah right I'll chat to you later and I hung up the phone and I was like I'm not turning on the TV like it's like uh, and this guy in particular uh is like a notorious wind up merchant uh, so uh, and then eventually like five minutes later I was like uh uh, like I'll just see and I turned on the TV and it was like moments after the second plane I hit like uh, and then I was just like glued to it all day I just couldn't kind of couldn't yeah, like it, it was I couldn't get over it I was uh, so I was sitting at home I was like able to consume it fully like I wasn't busy doing anything else uh, and I was just glued to like Sky News and uh, and like yeah and it, I do remember that like weird moment where it's like God it feels like this is like 
apocalyptic. Like there's there's so many more. Like there's more planes coming, and there's all these reports of like planes being unaccounted for, and like uh, like at one point it seemed like twenty or thirty targets were going to be hit, and I do mm. remember then it being slightly kind of reduced in like the scale of what like people were imagining to what it was, which was like obviously horrific. But I do remember this weird, weird small element of it. It's like Jesus, like this is massive, and this is like I suppose it's the way the media cover things. They wanted it to be is like, oh, there's planes over here and there's planes over there, and there's going to be multiple targets here. And you could see the media almost being disappointed by like, uh, oh, it's over. There's four planes, and and actually, like, it's 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 and it's weird that you get affected by that the way the media interprets uh, are like almost wants disasters to be bigger than they are, yeah. and and you find it horrible part of you to get swept along in that, and it's it's a it's a kind of a it's a horrible way to engage with. Uh, human misery and like you kind of have to check yourself and go the media wants this to be bigger there's actual real people about this is not a computer game this is not a movie this is like there's real people dying and uh, like this is horrific and it's just it's the way the media kind of uh, um, yeah explode things kind of makes uh, like uh, they want to drum up like a kind of a fervent energy and you kind of almost have to resist it you know yeah it, it, do, and it, do, it does speak to something like fascinating though because even we were talking about it in you know we were in our tech rehearsal yesterday and it was a slow day we're all sitting around and like conversation eventually moved on to I think well, event, eventually it ended up I can't remember exactly how it developed but we were talking about these you know Facebook pages where you'll see like terrible things shared whether it be like fights or you know like accidents or these kind of things and it, it, the event the conversation eventually spiraled onto like you know things like ISIS execution videos that like have I mean these things have like tens of millions of views and it, like it does speak to this bizarre like like th- this bizarre sort of thing or like something like th- the world's fascination with something like you know someone like Madeleine McCann you know mm. who goes missing and, and like ne- like you know, I don't know how many years, but like it must be like 10, 15 years after that almost. Like, and like that's still, I mean, like now in some circles, like Madeleine McCann is like a very, very valid punchline to like quite dark jokes. Mm. You know, if you're in like certain circles or else like it's the subject of like a Netflix documentary then uh, or, or, or whatever it is. Yeah, at the same time, then when you boil that right down to what it actually is like, it's like an unspeakably tragic, yeah. like, thing of like one of the most vulnerable members of like society going missing mm. without any trace like it's so, it's so bizarre that like these things for whatever reason and again I, I haven't thought about it on like a massively deep level maybe but like like they are inherently interesting yeah e- even the fact that for example to call bullshit myself like the fact that that like what, what are your memories of 9-11 because it was such a cultural moment and like on some level that probably does speak to that thing of like the media wanting it to be spectacular but even like for me as like I was like a like young enough like kid when it happened and I like just the the scale of it and like the the impact it has like I don't know if we'll ever see certainly like because obviously we're like you have that western civilization bias like uh, I know like there's unspeakable atrocities happening all around the world but like something in New York like the you know the capital of the world as like it's commonly called and happening like on that scale like at the beginning of the era of like camera phones when everything could be recorded mm. and to have that footage I mean I don't know if we'll ever see something like in, in like in our lifetime I hope we don't but like it was so spectacular yeah it was a certain there's just a, yeah there was a shift in like it was a kind of paradigm shift in in how the world processes incidents like that you know mm. like uh, and uh, it could be consumed in a different way mm. and I think I think maybe that's what I was kind of getting at. There was, you were being, suddenly the the media had access to all this camera fo- footage, which I thought we got more footage coming in from here, more footage coming in from there. And it wanted to sweep you up into like, like almost interpreting this as like watching a movie, you know? And again, yes, yeah, like the Madeleine McCann stuff, it's like so much sensationalism about it in the media that like it, they want you to treat it as like a, a missing person podcast, you know, like, or, yeah. like, or, or like a, you know, just like this piece of like crime fiction, you know, that, uh, and it's so important in this, I suppose, you know, like uh, in the midst of all this to kind of like keep checking yourself and kind of going, oh, sh- shit, like there are real people uh, at, at the heart of these tragedies that like, uh, 
and it's just very easy to kind of get swept along in the kind of uh, like yeah the movie version of it that like the like that I suppose with modern media almost is forced to create in order to uh, I mean I guess like without getting into it too heavily but you mm. know just the modern media uh, landscape they obviously just need clicks they need uh, eyes on screens and it's so competitive and uh, so de- therefore it invites you know it incentivizes sensationalism so 100% mm. right uh, time for one more let's give it a spin uh, right it is number 15 do you have it? no so 2 out of 6 yeah not, not, not bad not the worst not the worst <laughs> uh, number 15 uh, have you or do you ever consider emigrating? Uh, no not really not, not I mean I'm aware that in theory it might happen but I, I wouldn't be I'm generally quite a homebird I like I really like Ireland I really like Irish people I really like Dublin uh, very tied to my friends and family uh, I did I studied in, uh, the only time I've ever really considered it is I studied in UCLA um, for a while I did a master's in screenwriting in Galway and then got a scholarship to go up to UCLA out for like a semester after that and mm. and so I spent a little bit of time over there and they I really enjoyed it uh, and I went over on like a tourist visa because I didn't actually was not because it, it was in that decade after 9-11 and tur- student visas were notoriously hard to get a, a, at the time because all the hijackers had had student visas mm. so I kind of said I'm just going to go over on a tourist visa because I don't need to work over there and uh, so had I gone on a student visa I would have been entitled to stay there for a year after the semester ended and I was actually seeing somebody at the time and we broke up while I was over there mm. so I'd less and I, I'd been in a band and I left the band to go, to go over there so at the time I'd less to come home to uh, and if I had the student visa I might have considered staying over there for another nine months we'll say and I would have seen whether I could have drummed up some work and if I had have then I could have got sponsored to stay on longer and I, so in theory I could have emigrated at that point uh, but at the same time I was drawn home because I wanted to see my family I wanted to uh, see my mates like um, and I think I'll always be like that like I work a good bit in London and actually I've done a lot of work in Holland recently and uh, and so it, I could conceive, conceivably need to relocate in, in the future if things uh, kind of went extremely well in certain in, by certain measures uh, I I could need to go to London or further afield but uh, I've settled here and no plans I would have to be kind of like uh, it would have to be it would have to make sense professionally I wouldn't be like going to uh, for the sake of getting out or because I needed to you know mm. yeah. and like do, do you, would you be drawn to that because like even from like my limited enough knowledge but even like the way things are done in LA especially from a writer perspective like for example things like writers rooms which I know are become starting it seems like they're mm. becoming a little bit more of a thing here but like would would that like style of, of life over there you know obviously if, for example if you had stayed over uh, post scholarship and all that like would would that be the kind of like life you would be envisaging being in different writer rooms or would it be more of like um like more in the I, I mean I suppose those worlds are blurring I was going to ask like more in the screenwriter thing of like you're kind of off by yourself but those worlds seem to be blending more and more because of the yeah. like massive influence of TV and stuff now over there yeah I mean definitely like writers rooms are becoming more of a thing over in the UK and Ireland but they're slightly differently structured in that they tend to be like a week of development where you're breaking story for the series or breaking the story for the pilot or just trying to figure out the genesis of like how is this show going to work and like are just trying to bat around ideas or so or break down episodes so it, can, it tends to be short uh, collaborative bursts whereas over in the States then it's quite uh, it's like they're on contract uh, for you know six months nine mm-hmm. months uh, of the year on a specific show and that would be difficult because it would allow you less time to uh, to work on your own stuff or you know get features off the ground and things like that but I do I, like ideally it'd be something in between that mm. like you get longer stints over here like you might get a month in a writer's room and you know get a couple of episodes and, and uh, uh, but yeah I think that would be the ideal situation and I'd love to I really do like the writer's rooms I like collaborating with people I like working with people mm. I really get buzzed by sparking off really other brilliant creative people in a room and it's like 
the like your kind of the synergy that you get the uh, with your powers combined is amazing it's amazing how quickly you can kind of go down blind alleys and come back up them and like that would have taken you six months of like going down that blind alley if you were just doing it on your own and mm. suddenly you can explore that and come back from it like within like 20 minutes in a room you know and uh yeah it's, it's a really just stimulating environment so i do really enjoy it uh but yeah the model of doing it kind of like almost all year round i might find tricky like yeah sure. mm. yeah Nice one. Come here. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, really enjoyed it. I know, uh, obviously, the play is coming up next week. Mm. So, um, yeah, why don't you just tell us uh, a little bit about it? Cool. Yeah, so it's called uh, These Stupid Things, and uh, it's on in Smock Alley, uh, main space, uh, all, pretty much all next week. It's Tuesday to Sunday. It's uh, as part of the Festival of Curiosity, which is a kind of science and arts festival. Um, so, uh, as you can tell, it's, there's a kind of a science bent to it. Uh, it's basically it follows this uh, couple across, especially like pretty much their their whole relationship, uh, uh, and kind of follows them across their life and the key kind of choices and decisions they have to make at key moments in their life. But they also happen to be kind of doctors who are working together, and their work is to kind of train other doctors about like decision making in a clinical context and how doctors can make mistakes, like by kind of uh, suffering from cognitive biases and and uh, heuristics that kind of lead them to use their kind of intuitions and their emotions rather than their kind of like logical clinical judgment. Mm. And so um, what you see is they're kind of like, uh, there's kind of these mock seminars that they're giving and the kind of, I suppose, like uh, interesting element of the play is like it's a story, but it's also uh, they do these kind of little tests on the audience to uh to to reveal people's cognitive biases and uh it's very uh lightness of touch and it's like nobody singled out and it's you know it's not like uh it's it's very light stuff so nobody's uh i think the test that uh, that interactive album is going to be a lot of fun mm. uh, so yeah it's uh, I, I think it's going to be it's one of those plays that i'm really excited about because uh i suppose my favorite type of theater is stuff that like has it like it's very narrative and a story based but it also told in such a way that it could only be about the experience in the room you know like this story couldn't be told on the TV it couldn't be mm. told as a film the way the story works is about like ha involves some interaction with the audience like only a small bit but like it, 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 that's key to it and therefore every night's going to be unique and every night's going to be about that experience that people have in the room uh, I think that's like where theatre's at its best mm. you know it's what it does uniquely like uh so uh yeah i'm excited i i i'm 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 uh, you know we're, we're weak out so uh uh trying to finish off rehearsals and just make sure everything runs smoothly but uh it's really shaping up uh nicely brilliant cast ian toner and rachel yeah, o'burn what a cast yeah and uh and sarah sarah, sarah yeah. baxter directing brilliant. uh so yeah it's we're just this great team behind it and uh yeah uh it's exciting yeah Brilliant stuff, man. Hugh Travers, thanks so much for playing Personality Bingo. Thanks, Wayne. So, guys, that was the excellent Hugh Travers playing Personality Bingo. Hugh, if you are listening, a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it. Uh, I know it's going to be a super uh, busy time um, with the play kicking off. And speaking of, go and check it out. It is with the brilliant white label. It's these stupid things. It's from the 16th to the 21st of July. Uh, it's a 7.30pm uh, start, uh, except for the matinees, uh, which are 2 o'clock. Uh, on the Saturday and the Sunday so go and check it out I am definitely going to try and hit up one of them matinees because um, yeah it looks brilliant and um, the cast uh, and the team uh, in the shape of Sarah um, Rachel uh, Ian the, the whole gang um, it's just really really good people behind it and you can trust me on that one so go and check it out it's uh, 90 minutes long and oh it's got themes of a sexual nature so let's be real I think we're all going to love it uh, as I say guys come and check out Copperfield Jacks the musical uh, we are kicking off uh, tonight um, as I record this which is on the Wednesday so uh, as you'll hear this it'll be uh, the Sunday so uh, we'll be well in the swing of things we're at the Olympia Theatre uh, we're on for the uh, for the whole summer so come and check us out I'm so excited to be back on stage with the gang it's a really a special piece in just the sense of the reaction it gets from audiences I've never seen 
anything like it in a theatre and uh, I'd love for you to see what I am talking about uh, as always go and check out our Patreon it's patreon.com forward slash personality bingo um, chip something our way if you can it makes a huge difference to the running of the show and if this uh, podcast has added something to your life uh, it'd be amazing if you can just give the smallest thing back no matter what that looks like I promise it will make a difference and uh, what else um, yeah do a little uh, screenshot of the podcast and share it on your Instagram story a little tweet anything like that it all makes a massive difference to just getting the episodes out there um, our numbers are actually so healthy oh how cringe talking about numbers but it's been like you do do a podcast for people to hear it so I suppose it is somewhat relevant and um, yeah look I think these conversations are really cool and I just want to get them out to as many people as possible so if you can be a little part of uh, helping with that uh, it makes a massive difference and uh, I sincerely sincerely appreciate it so guys enough of all that tune in next week for another episode of Personality Bingo with Tom Moran This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.